Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is the second part of a two-part series entitled The Tale of the Republic of Chad, A Showdown in a California Meadow. If you haven't listened to the first part, you're going to want to pause this and listen to episode 264 first. Otherwise, you're going to be dazed and confused. We'll go ahead and skip all the niceties and get straight to the story so we can wrap this up and move on to whatever I have in store for you next, which I will figure out someday, just like I'm going to someday figure out my life. We left off last time with first responders and a reality show representative showing up at the scene of a shootout disgruntled American Chad Wallen-Reed had in an Antelope Lake, California meadow with a group of 19 and 20-year-olds that had nothing better to do, apparently, with their time than to mess with Chad's precious little solar lights. So we will pick up the story from there. By the time the game warden and the photojournalist were getting close to the meadow, there were several more sheriff's deputies with them, and they were getting ready for a potential armed confrontation. They had their weapons at the ready. As they approached, they found a single vehicle parked there. Several of its windows had been shattered by gunfire. And the photojournalist, he was getting every moment captured on video. As they approached, they saw two young men stand up with their hands up. One of them had a very pronounced limp. He had been shot by Chad and his AR-15 in the leg, through and through. Both of these young men were covered in blood. They had all sorts of injuries and they looked terrified. Then Ben saw movement off to the side. His cameras captured another hand coming up through the long overgrown meadow grass. The man who belonged to that hand had taken a bullet to his leg too. On his, he had placed a tourniquet using his own belt, but it was too tight and he was in a tremendous amount of pain. The sheriffs removed the tourniquet, and from there he started bleeding out profusely. So now what we have here is law enforcement having encountered a total of five young men. Three of them had escaped getting hit by any rounds that Chad had fired. Two of them had taken bullets to the leg, but there was one more. Ben, the photojournalist, stated in his interview, then there was another guy in the back seat who was, I guess, the driver. He was a lot worse off, but he was talking. He was moving his mouth. I could hear sounds. I couldn't make, I couldn't make out any words, you know, but it didn't look good. The young man that he was talking about was Rory McGuire. Remember also, all of this is being captured on video. And it is going to have quite an impact. So Chad had said that he saw a bullet wound in the neck of the driver of the vehicle. He had actually been shot in the head. And it's amazing that he was even still trying to speak at that point, considering he had taken a round from an AR-15. But still... The law enforcement officers, the first ones responding to whatever this whole thing was, it was very confusing for them because they were thinking that the six people who had been there strewn about and bloodied in this meadow were suspects based on the statements of Chad. 
they had to engage them as if they were armed and dangerous. What was also puzzling is how isolated the location of all of this took place in, and the fact that they found four of the young men in the meadow and two others at the campsite. And on top of all this, Chadwall and Reed was being questioned at yet another location. And before long, the place was swarming with officers, paramedics, and helicopters flying overhead. In one of the most tranquil and remote places in the state of California was suddenly feeling like a war zone. Just as Chad had already been perceiving it to be at home, terrorized by everything. When being questioned there on the spot by a sheriff sergeant, Chad's account was recorded. He said in part, they started shining a spotlight back at me. And the next thing you know, there's all these muzzle flashes. Chad was asked by the sergeant, do you think that they were firing on you? And Chad replied, yeah, they were firing back at me. Well, all I have to say at this point is Mr. Chad Wallen-Reed better be hoping and praying that the investigators find a gun or proof of a gun when they go searching around their vehicle. Otherwise, Chad's going to have some splaining to do. Detectives back in the meadow and at the campground searched the vehicle and the surrounding areas, looking for the gun or guns that Chad said these guys fired at him during this pursuit. They searched everywhere, but failed to find anything of the sort. Perhaps that could be explained away. They did drive quite some distance. They could have ditched the gun somewhere in the dark, vast forest. After their vehicle came to a stop there in the meadow, some of these young men fled on foot. They could have ditched the gun and hidden it someplace where it would never be found. Well, Chad had his version of events and, well, there were six young men in that car who may very well have their own versions to tell. And one of them did do an interview with Keith Morrison on this Dateline episode. And his name is Justin Lewis Smythe, but he goes by Lewis. He was the one who managed to raise his hand so he would be visible to the officers and to the video camera that Ben had with him. Lewis had suffered a severe gunshot wound to his leg, and he's the one who used his belt as a tourniquet. He's also the one that was waving whatever it was that Chad saw out the window, which turned out to be Lewis's own white t-shirt. And considering Lewis estimated that he had been laying there for at least 90 minutes to two hours, using his belt to slow the bleeding even though it was extremely painful, it most likely prevented him from bleeding to death. When the sheriff's first approached Lewis and his two other very seriously wounded friends, they thought that they were suspects, according to the story that they had gotten from Chad. The six men in the car were gunmen. Deputies trying to sort through the chaos and the confusion soon realized that these guys were really the shooting victims. So this raises the question, how is it that these six guys got into this horrifically violent shootout with Chad? Because as Chad told it, he was being terrorized by these guys. They put the fear of God into him, his family, his wife, his children, his friends. But Lewis Smythe had 
a much different tale to tell. The only thing barely visible when law enforcement arrived at the scene of the shooting in the meadow were the headlights from the vehicle that the young men had been driving in, which was a Chrysler Sebring. Of the four men that were found there, three of them had been shot and had been lying there, left for dead, for probably around two to three hours. That's the best guesstimate. As Lewis Smythe lay there, he was sure that if he survived this, that he was going to lose his leg. But at that point, he wasn't even sure if he was going to make it out alive. Well, as it turned out, Lewis did survive, and so would his leg. And his story, what he had to tell, contradicted just about everything that Chad Wallen Reed had said. And it did so in some very, very important and significant ways. The evening started about an hour away, where these young men lived in Susanville, California, a small-ish town about an hour north of Antelope Lake. The six friends had gotten together in search of some fun, something Susanville was apparently sorely lacking, particularly on that 4th of July weekend. Lewis was best friends with the gentleman driving the car that night, Rory McGuire, only 20 years old at the time that our story took place. Rory was a redhead that stood out like a sore thumb. Growing up like that, he came to enjoy garnering attention as he had a personality as vibrant as his hair. Rory and Lewis were very close. Of him, Lewis would say that he was definitely the brother that he had asked his mom for, but never got. On Friday, July 1st, the night we first talked about at the beginning of the story, Rory, Lewis, and four other friends had gone to Antelope Lake looking for a party. There were supposed to be girls there, so it was a no-brainer. They all wanted to find this place. The six of them piled into Rory's car to go searching for this party with said girls, but it was not to be. They could not find the house where this party was at, so they decided to go in search of something else to do. If you can't find girls to hang out with, then the next logical thing to do is to go look for some shenanigans to get into. One of the guys brought along this spotlight. You plug it into the thing formerly known as the cigarette lighter, now referred to as your vehicle's 12-volt accessory port. You plug the spotlight in and voila, let there be bright light, which would be very nice to have in them parts out there in the mountains and the forest where it's pitch black at night so you can more easily search for the mischief that you're interested in finding yourself in. Lewis stated in his interview with Keith Morrison, we stopped at the top of a canyon and we were shining the light down on a campsite. A bunch of people came out yelling. They were mad and anyways, everyone kind of got a kick out of that. So one of the guys in the car brought up the no trespassing signs that they had passed along the way towards that campsite. He wanted to go back so the rest of the guys could see it. So they drove there, they took their spotlight and shined it on these weird signs. Warning, you are entering the ROC. This is a restricted area. Only red-blooded patriotic Christian Americans are authorized for access upon approval and verification of credentials by the commanding authority. The use of deadly force is authorized 
for those who are found in non-compliance. So, of course, this carload of hooligans laughed and thought that this was some kind of weird joke. So one of them, their friend Joe Crawford, got out of the car, took down one of the smaller signs and stole one of the solar lights. He ran back to their car and they sped off. Even though solar lights cost no more than just a few dollars, I know that almost every single one of us would have been annoyed on some level if a bunch of bored assholes took one from our property. All Lewis could say about the incident was exactly what it would appear to be to almost all of us. Just random vandalism that a bunch of dumbasses would do. They were all loud, laughing, yucking it up the whole time. This was the commotion that Mr. Republic of Chad described hearing. To most of us, all these young men would amount to is a carload of bored assholes. But to Chad... They are an assemblage of domestic terrorist scum that if he had the chance, he would pump all of them full of lead. Is this the mindset of a combat veteran suffering from PTSD? Well, yeah, it's a very real thing. To him, this is a caravan of terrorists taking off into the night with apparently a huge haul, a single solar light. The friends eventually found their way home and called it a night. The following evening was another chance for these friends to go to a different party and hopefully meet up with some girls for real this time. Different party, same general location in Antelope Lake. So once again, Lewis, Rory, and four of their friends, the same ones from the night before with the exception of Joe Crawford, the solar light bandit, he wasn't there this second evening. Instead, they were joined by a young man named Cesar Gonzalez. They stopped off at a gas station, picked up some vodka and beers, and were back up the mountain on their way to this party, hopefully. About halfway there, the friends found themselves at that same property that they had vandalized the night before. So Rory stopped the car again, and this time, Caesar got out and took two more of the same solar lights that lined the property. Lewis said a few seconds later, just as Caesar was getting back into the car, they heard what they thought was a gunshot. They weren't wrong. It was a gunshot. It was that warning shot that Chad had previously told us he had fired into the air when he was alerted to the commotion at the end of his driveway for the second night in a row now. As Rory quickly sped away from the property, the young men inside were like, what the hell? Did someone just shoot at us? As they were going along, Lewis looked over his shoulder and out the rear window, and that's when he saw a truck chasing them, and the truck was gaining on them quickly. He knew that they had pissed somebody off. Shortly after Lewis noticed that they were being chased, he saw a green laser light floating around in the darkness of their vehicle. They could only assume that it was from a laser sight on a gun. At first, the young men in the car were in disbelief. There is no way that whoever was chasing them was actually trying to take aim with the laser sight and shoot them in their car. Like, no way this guy is going to shoot them like this. Not over something so stupid. People don't do this sort of stuff to each other. 
This was only a dozen years ago, mind you, dreamers. People do shoot people over stupid stuff. Halloween decorations, solar lights. Apparently, no pieces of personal property are too small, I guess. And just as the six were discussing how things like this don't happen, Chad Wallen-Reed opened fire. Pow, 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 every few seconds. They were hearing the sound of bullets dinging off their metal vehicle. This is when they turned the spotlight on and pointed it out the window behind them in an attempt to blind the person who was chasing and shooting at them. But Chad was not deterred. While that was going on, some of the others in the car were desperately trying to call 911 from their cell phones, but there was no cellular service to be found in the area they were in. Then remember when Chad described seeing something plastic or shiny out the window? That's when one of them told Lewis, who was wearing a white t-shirt, to take it off and wave it. Surely this person chasing them would understand the universal sign that you are surrendering and have no intentions of attacking. That's what was flying out the window, a signal of surrender. A signal Chad Wallen-Reed chose to ignore. The young men in the car were doing everything that they could to get him to stop shooting, but he would never let up. He never stopped chasing, and he never stopped shooting at them. They heard what Lewis described as flurries of gunfire the entire 7.6 mile or 12.2 kilometer chase. Unfortunately for Rory, who was driving, he had really no idea where they were going. He was not familiar with these parts. So he made that fateful turn onto a dirt road that ended in a large mountain meadow. The sound of gunfire chasing them was not far behind. And suddenly Rory told everyone in the car that the road had run out and he needed to turn around and try and head back in the direction from which they just came. He was hoping to be able to speed by the truck that had been pursuing them and out of that meadow that they would surely become stranded in if he didn't try. Remember, they're not in a truck or a Jeep. They're in a Chrysler Sebring, a small, allegedly luxury sedan. As Rory tried to race past the pursuing truck and flying bullets, more of their windows of their vehicle began blowing out and glass was raining down all over them inside the car. Rory's car was still moving, but within seconds, that was when Lewis took a bullet to the leg. He felt this hot sensation coursing through him, and eventually their car rolled to a stop. Those in their group who were able to run away from the car did, and Lewis wanted to try and run too, so he said to Rory, let's go. But that's when he noticed Rory's head was slumped all the way forward. Lewis said for the time being, Rory was still able to talk somewhat, so when he tried to get him to exit the vehicle, Lewis believed Rory said that he wasn't able to. A second later, Lewis saw that green laser light floating around the car and across his chest. And that is when he saw the gunman for the first time, Mr. Chad Wallen-Reed. As Chad approached, Lewis slinked down as far as he could in the back seat, keeping an eye on that green light as it crisscrossed around him and the inside of the car. He looked on as a man with the gun circled him, all the while keeping that gun pointed right at him. 
It reminded Lewis of someone from a SWAT team doing a sweep of a property. He was sure that this gunman was there to finish off what he had started. Finally, this gunman spoke. You want to effing shoot at my house? I got kids. Lewis told the gunman that they did no such thing. They did not shoot at his house. They wouldn't do something like that. When Lewis spoke, Chad suddenly pointed his gun right at him, and he again reiterated, We didn't shoot at your house. And then Lewis begged the gunman to get them some help. Please call the paramedics. That is when Chad finally left the scene. When Chad drove away, when these young men were sure that he was gone and wasn't coming back, the friends who were hiding in the tall grass came back to the car to tend to their injured friends. And it became abundantly clear that of the three of them who had been shot, Rory had sustained the most critical gunshot wound to his head. The friends were like, okay, let's everybody get in the car and we'll drive to find help. They were able to move Rory out of the driver's seat and into the back seat. There are images of him laying in the back of the car, just kind of half hanging out, which you can see online when you search for Rory McGuire. Remember, Ben, the photojournalist, was there to capture every single one of these moments, every violent gunshot wound, each one of these young men just bloodied and terrified. So once they got situated in the car, whichever one of them was going to drive tried to start it. He turned the key and got nothing. Their car was completely disabled. They weren't going to be able to go find help, at least not using that vehicle. The reality of their situation was sinking in. Things were looking dire. Their car wasn't working. Their phones weren't working. And they had absolutely no clue where they were at. The way the three of them were wounded, they were surely going to bleed to death before the night was over. That's when two of the friends who hadn't been shot decided to try and search the area for help. Maybe they would be able to find someone camping. Perhaps there's an occupied cabin somewhere in the woods. Anyone who would hopefully have a telephone line or a two-way radio. All they could do was pray that they found help before it was too late. And all Lewis can do was wait. He looked at his leg and it had been blown to bits. And he was bleeding profusely. On top of that, they feared that the gunman might just come back. So he decided to hide in a tall grass instead of in the car, which was an easy target to spot out there. Lewis and Rory were stuck near the car. However, Lewis did manage to get himself out of the vehicle and down onto the ground, and he tried elevating his leg, while at the same time, he did his best to keep Rory talking. Rory was inside the car still laid across the back seat. Lewis said Rory was still talking, but most of what he was saying he couldn't understand. Every once in a while, Lewis would hear Rory call his name. Slowly, numbness began to radiate throughout Lewis's leg. As the minutes ticked by, the rest of his body also grew numb, to a point where Lewis wasn't able to feel hardly any part of his body, with the exception of the pain emanating from his shattered leg. At some point, Lewis had taken off his belt and fashioned it into a tourniquet, a move which most likely saved his life. But Lewis already had it in his mind that he was probably not going to make it out of that meadow alive. 
Just as Lewis was realizing he couldn't feel his own face anymore, he saw headlights coming towards them. Lewis looked on as someone got out of the vehicle and that person had approached and then he heard the words, let me see your hands. Lewis was the one who the cameraman and the game warden did not see right away until he was able to finally bring himself to obey the verbal command, at which time he stuck his hand up from the tall grass. That's when someone came over to him and began to try and help tend to his wounded leg. The tourniquet was on too tight, so one of the deputies removed it, turning Lewis's numbness back into an excruciatingly sharp pain. Finally, Lewis was placed in the back of an ambulance, and with that, he was safe. He might just make it out of this alive after all, he thought to himself, which he thankfully did. By this time, Rory was no longer talking. He had slipped into unconsciousness. He was alive, but barely. And from there, Rory was airlifted to a trauma center in Reno, Nevada. Even though it was very difficult and emotional for Lewis to talk about what happened, he was very clear about how the events of that night unfolded. And it was different in terms of some critical points from which Chad had recounted the story. Starting with the fact that Chad said someone in the car had opened fire on him and he had two different stories about it as well. In one version of Chad's story, he said they had opened fire while at his property. And in another version, he said that they had opened fire on him and they did so first during the car chase. Chad stated, next thing you know, as I'm looking up, I see these three flashes and I hear crack, crack, crack. But according to Lewis, that was not true. It never happened because nobody in the car had a gun. And he would point to the fact that when their car came to a stop in that meadow after they had made a U-turn to get back onto the road after they ran out, Chad had fired at them, which is when three of them got shot. The car became disabled, and I'll explain more about that later on. And after they became disabled, Chad approached the car with his gun pointed on the inside, and there was absolutely no hesitation or fear on Chad's part as he came towards this vehicle, which would be unusual if someone in the car had just been shooting at him. Wouldn't Chad be afraid to approach the car? The fact that Chad came up to the car without hesitation lends to the notion that perhaps there was nobody in the car shooting at him, because if there was, Chad would not have approached it in the manner in which he did. Chad also never asked if they were armed. He never ordered them to throw their weapon out of the car, nor did he ask them to show their hands. Also, when Chad approached their vehicle, he asked them if they were the same ones who had shot at his house. He didn't say anything to them about having shot at him during the chase. It would be very strange for Chad to not ask them about their weapons inside the car because he did tell the police that he was shot at during the chase. And because of that, police scoured the area where this whole thing took place because they couldn't just take what the young men in the car were saying at face value, that nobody in the car had a gun, nobody shot a gun, none of them even owned a gun. There was also another glaring difference between the story that the young men told police versus what Chad told police, and that had to do with what Chad had said to them after he inspected the car and found that he had shot and wounded some of these men. Chad said that when he left them in the meadow, 
that he was going to call the sheriff and get them help. He knew that he had shot at least a couple of them, and he knew that at least one of them was very critically wounded. Chad said that he told them that he would find help. But Lewis, he clearly remembered what he heard the gunman say right before he got back into his truck and drove away. And this is a direct quote from Lewis. If I ever see any of you MFers again, I'm going to kill all you guys. And you know, that kind of sounds like something someone who has a sign posted at the edge of his property that said only red-blooded patriotic Christian Americans are authorized for access upon approval and verification of credentials by the commanding authority. The use of deadly force is authorized for use on those found to be in non-compliance. In fact, if I ever see any of you MFers again, I'm going to kill all you guys, sounds exactly like something Chad Wallen-Reed would say. It's going to be up to investigators to sort through the conflicting stories to try and figure out exactly who was telling the truth about this chase and the shooting and who wasn't. It's going to make all the difference in the world when it comes down to whether or not Chad had the right to do what he did in chasing these young men down and firing his weapon at them in the manner in which he did. In the meantime, the driver of the Chrysler Sebring that Chad had shot at Rory McGuire was flown to a hospital in Reno. And of course, his parents, Carol and David, who were divorced, were contacted early the following morning. That would be Sunday, July 3rd, 2011. It's a call that nobody ever wants to get. But for the time being, all that Rory's parents were being told on the phone was to get to the hospital, on the double, that Rory was in very critical condition. Around the same time, Chad's kids were being awakened by the sounds of a team of law enforcement officers executing a search of their home. Chad and Carrie had been interviewed by various investigators with the Sheriff's Department all evening long. At the same time, they were trying to reassure their children, who were pretty terrified, that Daddy had things under control. You know, for a guy who wants his children to live peacefully and without fear, Sure does do a whole lot of shit that causes them to be filled with fear, stress, and anxiety. As much as we may place some of the responsibility on Rory and Lewis and their carload of friends for these kids being afraid, I feel like a part of the blame has to be placed on Chad and his wife for blowing this whole thing way out of proportion. When all is said and done, the only thing that was going on that night with these young men in that car was that they were being a bunch of dum-dums messing around with Chad's stupid sign and his cheap-ass solar lights. I'm not saying that they weren't wrong. And trust me, I'm the first one who would be over-the-top annoyed by these little jerks messing with stuff that wasn't theirs to mess with in the first place. And if I found a bunch of teenagers fooling around with something in my yard, I would go out there and I would be like, can I help you? What do you think you're doing? Where are your parents? Isn't it past your bedtime? Get a job. Go home. I would hurl all sorts of snarky comments their way, and they might do the same thing back to me. And at the end of the night, we're all going to go home, lay down, and go to sleep in our beds to live another day. I feel like Chad and Carrie, as parents, turned this whole thing into a big, huge, terrifying ordeal when all they needed to do was tell their children that 
these guys are just a bunch of idiots with nothing better to do. Don't act like that when you guys become teenagers. Then it's done. Simple. Over with. And everybody's at ease. But they just couldn't do that. And in their interview on Dateline, one of Chad's kids says, And they took all of our guns and I was crying. I didn't know who they were. Again, another thing that could have been very easily explained to these children on their level. These are the police. They're here to help us. There's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, I'm sure it's scary to wake up and find the police searching your house. But it's our job as parents to help our children understand that this isn't something to be terrified of if you haven't done anything wrong. There's a part of me that thinks Chad and Carrie want their kids to live in this tremendous amount of fear, and I just don't get it. Chad will point to being in the army, being in combat, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, I'll have more to say about that also a little bit later on. Chad had spent the whole evening before going over in as much detail as possible with investigators about what happened at their property, about the more than seven mile long car chase and everything that happened along the dirt road and in that meadow where it had all finally come to an end. Chad told investigators that those men in that vehicle two nights in a row had terrorized them and he had to take matters into his own hands in order to keep his family safe. He said, quote, I had to get those sons of bitches, get their license plates, go after them. With my military training, I was an effing ranger. They shot at him first, Chad insisted. He fired back at them in self-defense. This is how he was trained in the military, that you have to continue to follow a threat and neutralize it. He got into this zone and needed to neutralize them. And he stated, I served five years in the military to kill people on the other side of this world. From there, detectives asked Chad to take them along the entire route of the chase and to recount everything that happened, the shooting, everything, and they videotaped the whole thing. Chad showed investigators where he claimed someone in their vehicle started shooting at him. And then when he returned fire, and he said that he used a small handgun that he had in the cup holder of his truck to return fire. He showed them the exact spot where he started firing back. Detectives made sure to mark all the places where Chad said that guns were fired so those specific places could be searched for evidence. Eventually, they made their way into the meadow. But when they got there, there were already evidence tags everywhere that officers had found spent shell casings. When Chad saw that there were evidence markers and shell casings that had been found, he suddenly needed to change his story. Because here's the thing, they're going to find that those shell casings did not come from a small caliber handgun like he'd been saying. They came from an AR-15 that fires significantly larger bullets than a handgun. You see, as Chad was being questioned through the night, he was asked repeatedly what kind of gun he had fired at the young men. And he said that all he had with him was a handgun. But once investigators started finding AR-15 shell casings all over the place, well, Chad had to change up his story. He had been insisting and insisting and insisting that all he had was a handgun, 
but when they got out into the meadow in that recorded recreation of the chase, Chad admitted that there was a second gun. And remember, he had been talking to investigators for hours all night and into the next day. Chad was sticking to his story until evidence was showing otherwise. Chad admitted that the assault rifle shell casings they found did in fact come from his own AR-15 and that he did use that to fire at those young men in the car in the meadow. But he continued to deny shooting it at any other point during the chase. But we know that it's also a lie because Lewis said that he saw the green light from the AR-15's laser sight inside their vehicle during the chase. But then Chad had to change his story again because the evidence betrayed him. Once again, he had to admit that he had fired the AR-15 prior to getting into the meadow along that dirt road that Rory had turned down, which abruptly came to an end. He stated, um, yeah, I take that back. That's when I shot the AR for the first time. Even though Chad was admitting to parts of his lies, he was still lying when he said that that was the first time he shot at them. Chad also admitted that he was driving and in motion at the time that he fired the AR-15. This is a gun that weighs 6.5 pounds or 5 kilograms. It's more than 3 feet or about a meter long. And he's holding this thing out his window, shooting at them while he's driving. You're not going to conveniently forget that or accidentally mix up holding your AR-15 versus holding your handgun. This is a guy who in the beginning of his interview with Keith Morrison said that he loved shooting off his AR-15, getting that many bullets to go at such a fast pace. So what do we have here? This was a chance for Chad to use it in a real life car chase, living out his deadly, violent AR-15 fantasies. I can't say for sure, but I'm fairly certain that Chad Wallen-Reed enjoyed every single second of that chase, and he enjoyed pulling that trigger every time he pulled it. And just like I had said in the beginning, Chad had bought that AR-15 in Nevada and brought it into California illegally, a thing that he claimed to not know. California has a statewide ban on all assault rifles. And Mr. Red-Blooded Patriotic American Army Ranger doesn't know that? I call bullshit. After Chad admitted to using the assault rifle, he told the detectives that he did use it again when the car ended up in the meadow and then had made a U-turn. Chad said that he thought that they were, quote, going to get out and engage me. Okay, so after trying to flee from this guy for more than seven miles, after he's opened fire on them with an assault rifle, after they've tried to wave a white t-shirt out the car window as a sign of the absolute opposite of wanting to have any more to do with this confrontation, after running out of road and driving their vehicle into an overgrown meadow with no place else to go, all the while he's still firing on them, Chad thinks that they're going to turn around and get out of their car and engage with him? Okay, Chad. So again, under his umbrella of self-defense, Chad stated, I grabbed the AR and I swung it out the door and that's when it popped off the rounds at them with the AR. Yeah, it popped off the rounds. Way to deflect, right? 
The detective asked Chad, okay, so when they were driving past you, coming back this way, you were shooting the AR at them? And Chad replied, yes, sir. But Chad had already figuratively shot himself in the foot with the way his story shifted and evolved every time the detectives went around and around with their questions, asking and re-asking as evidence was coming to the surface and developing. Chad's story changed with every iteration. Don't forget that Chad had his version, but there are six other people, well, at least five, that were a part of this violent confrontation, and five of them, for the time being, were going to be able to give their versions of what happened. And each one of those five were spoken to separately by the same detectives, and every single one of them told the exact same story from start to finish every time they told it. I mean, right down to the most minuscule of details. And most importantly, their stories never wavered. Their stories never changed. Another important aspect of their story was the fact that they all came to the realization that while they were being chased by Rory, who was driving, they missed a critical turnoff that would have taken them towards Antelope Lake, where they knew that there were people who lived there. There were homes and cabins. It was the 4th of July. There were parties, and they were desperately trying to get down that specific road in order to be in a place with more people around so this gunman chasing them and shooting at them would stop already. They were looking for a safe place to flee to and to get help. But Roy missed that turn, and he ended up turning down a dirt road that ended into a meadow instead. Another important detail was the fact that they all, independently of one another, said that nobody in their car had a gun. Nobody ever shot at Chad. And the detectives came down hard on them, even giving them that potential out. Like, look, if you had a gun, it's going to be okay. You have the right to defend yourself because this guy is shooting at you. But they all insisted there was no gun. None of them had one. The only one shooting was the man chasing them. As the investigation carried on, one of the important aspects of this case were the searches that they needed to do along the route of the chase. And one of the things that they found was the place where Chad's bullets had begun shattering Roy's car windows. The location where they found the pieces of glass did in fact mark the place where those windows were blown out. And the location did not match up with Chad's retelling of the story. Another thing was when Roy was driving through that meadow, the undercarriage of his vehicle struck something really hard protruding from the ground, something like a large rock. It happened right after he had turned the car around and was trying to head back to the dirt road. Whatever that rock struck under the car, it caused engine oil to be gushing out of the bottom, leaving a trail, an exact path of travel that the detectives were able to follow. Again, that path that Rory took, the one marked by this oil slick, contradicted the story that Chad told where they were heading right towards him. It was clear that the vehicle was trying to go around him. 
Within 12 hours of this confrontation in the meadow, detectives on the case had had enough. Based on what they found with the inconsistencies in Chad's story, they decided to take him into custody. He was arrested for several counts of attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. Nobody in Chad's camp could have seen that coming. After all, the only thing that he was guilty of was protecting his family from the six men who had set out two nights in a row to terrorize him, his friends, his family, and his children. They don't get to do that without being made to face the consequences of their actions, right? Wrong. At least not according to the district attorney who made the decision to file those charges against Chad. As he saw it, Chad's actions went far beyond the scope of self-defense. He chased down those young men who were doing everything that they possibly could to indicate that they were surrendering. Chad chased them for miles, and when he shot at them, he shot with intentions of killing. With the persistence he exhibited and an AR-15 in hand, there just aren't two ways about it, at least according to the DA. In the searches of Chad's property, they found that he had placed his AR-15 back on his gun rack, along with an arsenal of other weapons. All of them were confiscated. Chad had an entire closet full of ammunition. So yeah, this was a man definitely ready for a war. I mean, should one just so happen to break out randomly in the California mountains? Because that's a thing. They also found Chad's interesting little personalized no trespassing sign. The one that attracted the attention of the young men in the car in the first place, which was pretty much the starting point of this whole entire mess. The sign that they thought was just ridiculously hilarious. And to an extent, I would tend to agree it is kind of a ridiculous sign. But the difference with me is a sign would have scared me. I would have kept on going with my happy little self, moving along quickly and far away from this Republic of Chad place. So as Chad was getting booked into the Plumas County Jail, Rory McGuire was clinging to life in a Reno hospital in the intensive care unit with an AR-15 round lodged in his brain. His mom had arrived and was keeping watch over him at his bedside. She said with the exception of the metal plate that Rory had covering the spot where the bullet entered. Her son looked just normal, just like himself, as if he were sleeping. But even though nobody had said anything to her yet, Rory's mom could tell by the look on his attending nurses that he wasn't going to make it. While his parents understood that what their son and his friends did was wrong, Chad took things too far acting as if he were in a war zone. And once Chad was finished supposedly defending himself as this American soldier would, the next thing he should have done was go to get these kids help. These young men weren't enemies that Chad was in a battle with or at war with. But Chad would continue to say that he did everything that he did to protect his children. He will play that card over and over and over again with the hopes that his kids would be able to pull at everybody's heartstrings. But for me, the more I hear this man talk, 
the less I feel like this was all in defense of his family and his children and more about himself and his categoric inadequacies and failures as a man and as a member of the United States military. And Chad will tell anyone who will listen until he's blue in the face that none of this was his fault, that those young men in that vehicle opened fire on him first, and he will insist that he never got into his truck that night with his AR-15 to set out to hurt anybody, stating in his interview, quote, I can honestly sit here and say that I did not get in my vehicle. I did not sit there at the moment. I had the AR-15 and saying, I'm going to pick up this weapon and I'm going to go down there and I'm going to kill these guys. Heck no, no way. There ain't no way. Um, excuse me, Chad, but I believe your own no trespassing sign directly contradicts you, Chad. Deadly force will be used, blah, blah, blah. You made that sign, Chad. You had your AR-15 right next to you, Chad. You did sit there. You did pick up that weapon. You did go down there and you did try to kill those guys. That's exactly what he did. Heck yeah. Yes way. Well, anyway, Chad insisted that he and his family were victims and that they were shot at first, stating, if they had never shot at me, there'd be no reason for a gun. There would have been no reason for me to fire, to shoot, to use the firearm. You know, in my mind frame, these people were trying to kill me. And when Keith Morrison asked Chad's wife, Carrie, if she wished her husband would have just let it go and come back home, without a millisecond of hesitation, she said no, because they would still be in all this tremendous fear that these people would be coming back to terrorize them over and over again. Chad was protecting them. Terrorized. That's a word we hear over and over again. I guess stealing solar lights is the new crashing planes into skyscrapers these days. Over what was left of that holiday weekend, we can probably imagine that Rory's family, friends, and loved ones hung on to that sliver of hope that he would somehow pull through. It would have taken a miracle, but a miracle would not be had. On July 4th, 2011, Rory hemorrhaged, and with that, he was brain dead. Was the Republic of Chad sitting in the Republic of County Jail, hoping and praying that Rory would pull through too? Perhaps he wouldn't be looking at a murder charge and possibly never being able to be with his family, whom he claimed to have been so protective of, which landed him in the county lockup in the first place? I honestly don't know if Chad cared either way. I think this man's overblown ego wouldn't have allowed him to care. Because he's a soldier, right? An army ranger. You kill the enemy, you step over them, and you move on to the next one. It's ironic because now, not only had Chad left his family and friends more vulnerable than ever by removing himself from being able to keep a watchful eye over them, he's now locked up and isolated with the worst threat and biggest enemy he's ever going to face, and that's himself. He's looking at a charge of first-degree murder, Chad's bail was set at $1 million, an amount that nobody in his circle of family and friends were going to be able to come up with. So he was going to have to stay put. His wife, Carrie, 
will sit there and weep and whimper about my husband this, my kids that, and they don't have their father. We don't have anybody to protect us. We're scared. We're terrified. We're vulnerable. We can't survive without Chad, etc., etc. I'm sorry, but this victim narrative, it bothers me so much. Maybe it was someplace in Carrie's life experiences that has her living in the state of constant and perpetual terror. But imagine the impact being in that frame of mind is having on her kids. Carrie's acting as if they're completely crippled and incapable of surviving in this world without Chad. I don't know. I don't mean to sound cold or uncaring, but as a woman and a mother, especially looking at the prospect of possibly being a single mother, we have to pick up the pieces and be powerful and fierce in the face of the shit that men do for ourselves and for our children. We can't go around and hide and cower and live in fear. We have to figure it out because nobody's going to figure it out for us. Most importantly, we don't need a man to be and feel protected. The whole aspect of this story is so cringe to me. And I'll tell you, if I had a man who thought doing what Chad did was a way to make me feel safe and secure, I'd rather be alone, take care of myself. The last thing I want in my life is some kind of crazy loose cannon with an assault rifle. But anyway, enough about that. As Chad sat in the county jail, he grew more and more angry at the fact that he was sitting in the county jail for what he perceived was the wrongdoing of these six young men in that car. For a fleeting moment, Chad said he thought about perhaps what if he didn't have that gun in the first place? Maybe none of them would be in that situation. You think? But then Chad rolled back on that thought and stated in his interview, quote, Something just grabs me inside and says, they were wrong. They scared your family. Did they deserve to be stopped? Absolutely. They don't deserve to have the right to do that. And while it just so happened that an attorney, who also seemed to be an advocate for the stand your ground laws in this country, his name was John Olson, he caught wind of Chad's story and believed that even though California doesn't have a specific stand your ground law written down on the books, a jury can be read instructions about it and consider it if it applies. And John Olson believed that Chad's situation is exactly what this law was written for. As he described Chad as a good citizen with a clear criminal background and a good military record, in fact, Chad was so confident in what this attorney had to say about his case that he turned down a deal that the district attorney had offered him in order to not take this case to trial because a trial like this was going to cost a small county like Plumas County a lot of money. I don't know what the specifics of the deal were, but it certainly would have been much more advantageous for Chad versus what he would possibly be facing if he were convicted of first-degree murder, plus all the other charges that could be piled on top of that because he did shoot at six people in a moving vehicle. So yeah, the Republic of Chad was not willing to negotiate with the Republic of California. 
He was going to trial and he said he was looking forward to it, apparently. He said that there is a story to be told. Things need to come out and the trial will bring about an awakening. But you know, that was going to have to be up to a jury, which in the area that this was happening in, it's a mishmash of outdoorsy country folks, just like Chad, and those not so conservative Northern California city dwellers. The divide is pretty clear and pretty even, so a case like this, it's a gamble. It could go either way. So with the local newspaper, there were a lot of letters written to the editor. And I think they were pretty evenly divided, like I said. Some were saying the state of California ought to reimburse Chad for the cost of his ammunition. And there were people saying, you know, I moved up here from the Bay Area to get away from all this and people shouldn't have guns and they shouldn't shoot guns. Chad was riding his hopes on the jury seeing things through his eyes. His trial began in the summer of 2013. A county as small as Plumas with the budget to match, they were going to only get one shot at taking him to trial, so they had to get it right. They weren't going to be able to do this a second time. Chad's attorney would tell the jury that he opened fire because he was fired upon, that he believed his life was in imminent danger. His attorney said that Chad was a family man protecting his wife and his children, doing exactly what a father should do after being terrorized by those men. And they put Chad's 12-year-old daughter on the stand to tell the same story that she told in her interview on Dateline. And the child did bring some of the members of the jury to tears as she spoke about how afraid she was when those men came to her family's property, how she asked her mom what were they going to do if they came back and what was going to happen if they were hurt and that she was reassured that everything was going to be okay because dad was going to protect them. Chad's wife took the stand in defense of her husband's actions, and she talked about how terrified they were. And for no other reason than they were scared to death, that was the reason why Chad went after them that night. Chad was emotionally and mentally distraught when he got back, and it was a state of mind Carrie said that she had never ever seen in her husband before that night. The heart of the defense's case was going to be whether or not the young men in the car opened fire first, and it was Chad who shot back in an act of self-defense. And according to Chad's attorney, in his mind, the evidence showed Chad's account of what happened was the true and accurate version of the story, that all the men in the car were lying and that they had a gun with them. And according to Chad's attorney, these were a group of bad kids. While they say that none of them would carry a gun, that they never would and never had, Chad's attorney would point that one of their Facebook pages, there's a post displaying a gun and a knife. I believe that ultimately that evidence, the judge ruled that it could not be admitted to trial because there was no reference point of the picture. They don't know when it was taken. There was some technicalities. So the jury didn't even see that. There was some evidence that pointed to someone in the car having fired a gun because along the search of the route that they all took, the evening of the car chase, investigators found three shell casings that did not come from either of Chad's guns. And Chad said that they shot at him three times. And sure enough, they found three 380 casings that Chad's attorney said were together and not from Chad's gun. 
and according to the forensic analyst hired by the defense, there was gunshot residue found inside Rory's car and traces of it on some of their hands. And because of that, according to Chad's attorney, somebody must have shot a gun from inside that car. And there was apparently gunpowder residue found on the hand of the person riding in the front passenger seat. And it was for that reason that Chad had to continue firing at the car after he ran out of road and ended up in that meadow and the U-turn had been made. Chad had been fired upon. They were coming back towards him for more. Remember dreamers, they never found a gun that had been tossed or ditched anywhere along that route in the meadow or any place in between the scene of the shooting or the campground where the two uninjured friends were found looking for help. And Chad did not take the stand in his own defense to make the case that he shot at these young men. I found that quite surprising because when you claim you're not guilty by reason of self-defense, you almost always have to take the stand. Like I said, the prosecution had this one chance to win the conviction because there was not going to be a retrial if, by chance, they had a hung jury, which was a very real possibility because of the divide within the community. And it wasn't going to be all that easy to convict Jad because on the surface, he seemed like a well-meaning stand-up guy. He was a loving and caring family man, a devoted husband and father with a trio of kids that can melt the hearts of the hardest of the hard and the toughest of the tough. And a military veteran too, Chad was, an army ranger. That's no small thing that can be just brushed over or ignored. Chad had been a member of an elite force. He had to be of sound judgment and good character. So it was going to be up to the prosecutor to convince 12 people that on the night of the shooting, Chad was exactly the opposite of all that. In addition to that, they needed to have the evidence show that when Chad opened fire on those six young men, he was not acting in self-defense, that he was not in imminent danger of great bodily harm or death at any point in time. All these young men did was set off Chad's temper and that his temper escalated every minute that those young men attempted to get away from him. And one of the things that had the biggest impact, it came from the video that was shot by that photojournalist who was along the ride with the game warden, who was the first one to respond to the 911 call. And it was all laid out right there for the jury to see. Those six terrified young men, all of them bloodied, half of them shot, one of them mortally. It's one thing to spell it out in a spoken narrative. It's quite another to be able to let the video play as it was recorded in real time. That is what Chad Wallen-Reed did that night to these young men. Take a look at this video and look at the carnage. And it was all for what? He did this for what? Solar lights. Lewis Smythe testified and spoke about what happened to him that night, how Chad's green laser sight bounced around the interior of their car, how it danced across his chest, how they could hear the sound of rapid gunfire and bullets hitting the metal of their car, how Rory drove his car as fast as he could get it to go, how they tried in vain to end the chase by throwing out the solar lights and waving a white t-shirt of surrender out the window 
how one of Chad's AR-15 rounds ripped through his leg and another into the head of his best friend. No matter what any of those young men did in that vehicle that night, nothing was going to stop Chad from trying to shoot them and kill them. But if they opened fire first on Chad, then everything Chad did would have been reasonable and justified. However, the reason this even made it to trial is because law enforcement had absolutely no evidence to indicate that anyone in that vehicle that night ever fired at Chad first. There was no evidence that anyone even had a gun. Chad's defense attorney would point to a couple of pieces of evidence that he insisted indicated that someone in the car driven by Rory McGuire had a gun and was firing. Along the more than seven mile chase, investigators recovered those three spent shell casings that came from a gun other than the ones that were fired by Chad. The prosecutor scoffed at the notion that these bullets came from a moving vehicle because they were all found within 12 to 18 inches of each other. Meaning if the vehicle that the young men were traveling in was going as fast as the driver could possibly get it to move, then there was no way that these bullets would have landed in such close proximity to one another. One shell casing would have fallen a few seconds later if someone had got off a second shot while traveling 50 to 60 miles per hour, that bullet would have been way more than 12 to 18 inches away from the first, and the third one would be even further away. It's nonsense, said the prosecutor. Then there was the gunshot residue that was found inside Rory's car and on at least one of their friend's hands, and the defense was able to bring about an expert who testified to that fact. But the prosecutor came back with an expert of his own that testified that what was found inside the car and on the hands were elements of gunshot residue. That when you hit a car as many times as their car was hit, with as many high-velocity rounds that came from Chad's AR-15, you're going to find gunshot residue inside the vehicle as a result from those bullets that came flying into and through them and their car. That was frankly going to have to come down to whose opinion the jury was going to believe more, or if it was going to bring about enough reasonable doubt about whether or not these young men had a gun, or was Chad being a liar, liar, pants on fire. Ultimately, the prosecution was able to prove that Chad was lying because of that oil slick that Rory's car had left in the grass of the meadow when he made that U-turn. The young men in the car who survived all said that when Rory turned around, he did so in an attempt to speed past Chad in order to get back onto the dirt road to get away. Chad said that when the car made the U-turn, the driver floored it into a straight path directly towards him and it was Chad himself who had to swerve his truck out of the way in order to not take a direct head-on hit from this vehicular assault. The oil slick that Rory's car left behind, it left a swerve pattern. Rory was not going for a head-on collision with Chad's truck. He was desperately trying to get around Chad's truck to get away. And as their vehicle approached to go around, Chad opened fire, and that's when the three of them were hit. Rory fatally. Using that oil slick evidence, the prosecutor had a digital recreation made to show the exact path Rory's car took as it tried to get out of that meadow and away from Chad. In addition to that, 
Chad had said that he was shooting to try to disable their vehicle. So I have to ask, where would you shoot in order to stop a vehicle from moving? I think we've watched enough action shows and movies to know that you try to shoot out the rear tires. But Chad blew out several of their windows, which means he was aiming high and aiming for the head. Most of his shots, with the exception of a few strays that went through the doors, most of them were intended to be headshots. Everything investigators found indicated that Chad was shooting to kill. Even though the young men tried to give up, tried to surrender, tried to get away, Chad kept chasing and he kept shooting. The last thing Chad said to his friends before he took off after their car was that he was going to get those sons of bitches. And according to the prosecutor, those were the truest words that Chad Wallen-Reed spoke throughout this entire ordeal. I'ma get those sons of bitches. Chad said it, Chad meant it, and Chad did it. As the Chad Wallen-Reed trial was drawing to a close, the district attorney received a bit of information that brought about a plot twist in this case that everyone found to be quite unexpected. And it would throw into question the veracity of everything Chad had to say about the events the night of the shooting, as well as his entire life story. The district attorney received an official looking piece of mail, a large piece of mail, and it had come from the United States government. And at this point in the trial, it was like this mail had fallen from heaven and it was exactly what the prosecution needed to put a nice pretty bow on their case against the man who shot his AR-15 into a carload of friends who had made the unfortunate decision to mess with his solar lights. Investigators who had been working on this case from day one were tasked with checking into Chad's background, particularly his military records, just to see that what he said matched up with what the government had to say about it. Because Chad repeatedly over and over and over again talked about his time in the military. I was in the army. I was a ranger. I fought overseas. I killed guys on the other side of the world. I fought in the desert for five years. What happened to him in that meadow happened to him at war. Chad even asserted or insinuated that what he saw coming from those young men's vehicle was akin to a flashback of his encounters with enemies at war. They had put in the request for Chad's military records nine months before the trial started, and it took that long for them to get the answers that they were looking for. The only thing about Chad's experiences in the military was the fact that he was a member of the United States Army. He did not, however, ever finish the commitment that he had signed up for. In fact, Chad Wallen-Reed was asked by the Army to leave. He had never been overseas. He had not ever set foot on foreign soil as a soldier. He had never been in combat. He was not an Army Ranger. He had not ever killed not one single person ever until he killed Rory McGuire. The only reason why Chad was asked to get the F out of the army? What was the reason? 
He was discharged for forging sick leave documents and for bringing his own personal weapon into the army barracks. And that wasn't all. And that wasn't even the worst of it. Chad was also asked to leave the army for wearing combat infantry badges and army ranger tabs, along with other significant badges that Chad did not in any way, shape, or form earn or deserve. Yes, dreamers, you heard that right. This case just went from stolen solar lights to stolen valor. So it would be easy for us and the jury to assume that if Chad would lie about something as serious as military service, then he would probably lie about what happened the night of the shooting. So up until the prosecutor's office got that information towards the end of the trial, Everyone, the police, the investigators, the prosecutors, the district attorney, the court, the judge, the jury, and the public, everyone had been beaten over the head by Chad with his bullshit military service claims. He rode that lie until the prosecutor was able to bring him down with the truth. And there are a few things that are more shameful than lying about military service, particularly when you're dealing with a person like Chad Wallen-Reed. Mr. Red-Blooded Patriotic Christian American. Lie, lie, lie. All the stuff I said throughout this episode about giving Chad some benefit of the doubt, his military service, his combat experiences, his potentially suffering from PTSD, all of that just got tossed into the rubbish bin along with every last ounce of Chad Wallen-Reed's credibility, which was already on shaky ground starting from his very first version of what had happened, that he only shot three rounds at the young men with his handgun, that his pistol was the only weapon that he had. The prosecutor was able to point his finger at Chad and tell the whole entire world what a liar this man was, that what he did was absolutely the wrong thing that night. He chased those six young men down because he was angry. And you just don't get to do that. You don't get to kill somebody because you're a pissed off lying piece of shit. None of what Chad did, not one thing that he did that night amounted to an act of self-defense. All of it instead added up to murder, plain and simple. Chad's defense attorney in his closing kept on with the same notion that Chad believed he was in imminent danger of great bodily harm or death because of the actions of those young men in their car. They came and terrorized him and his family two nights in a row and they shot at Chad first. And what he did that night was an act of absolutely justifiable homicide. But it would be up to the jury. Chad's wife and his defense attorney believed that he would be home before the day was over. But the one who was being surprisingly realistic about the whole situation was Chad himself. Keith Morrison asked him in his interview if he thought he would be found guilty and Chad said no. He said he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison. He was absolutely sure about that, that his faith in the legal system had been seriously shaken, that the majority of the people have a negative opinion of him. So all that nonsense Chad said earlier about wondering if he never had a gun, maybe none of this would have ever happened, but then he rolled back on that sentiment when he said that those young men deserved what they got and had no right to terrorize his family and that they would not be getting away with what they had done. In some ways, Chad wasn't wrong. I get annoyed just as much as the next person when it comes to a group of loud, rowdy, obnoxious young people 
And right now, they're everywhere. This is Vegas. It's summer vacation. But as annoying as they are, they don't deserve to be shot. The young men in that car that night weren't right. They didn't do the right thing. They saw that stupid Republic of Chad sign and reacted to it by vandalizing and stealing a solar light. And then they just had to go and be assholes two nights in a row and come back and do it again. But they did not deserve to be shot at. The warning shot would have been more than enough. What it comes down to, in my opinion, is the fact that Chad Wallen Reed is a small, cowardly man. He couldn't make it as a real soldier, so he had to fake it. He went around acting like a tough guy by talking about fighting in the war, a war that he was never in, killing enemy combatants that he never faced, hoping that that would be enough to get people to just back down and respect him. Chad chased down a car full of six friends acting like fools with an AR-15 and fired at them for more than seven miles and would not stop until he had them cornered because his little man ego had to win. And here he is admitting that he was certain that he would be spending the rest of his life in prison. And the reason I believe he would say that in his interview is because this is a man who has to be right. If he sat there and said, no, I have faith in the system. I know I did the right thing. The jury's going to see it my way. And it turned out that they would have convicted him. Then Chad would be wrong again. He knew he murdered Rory McGuire in cold blood, not in self-defense. And he knew that he would be convicted. Chad Wallen Reed is an insignificant small man who always has to be right. And yeah, for once in this whole entire tragic story, Chad was right. He was going to be spending a very, very long time in prison. It took the jury less than a day to find him guilty of murder. On November 21st, 2013, the judge sentenced Chad to 84 years to life in prison. The breakdown went a little something like this, according to the court documents. Count one of murder, an indeterminate term of 25 years to life, plus a consecutive sentence of 25 years to life for the enhancement pursuant to California's use a gun and you're done law, which can add either 10, 20, or 25 to life for certain felonies if you use a gun in the commission of the crime. And FYI, this law is applicable even if the firearm is unloaded or inoperable. So you get 10 years extra in prison for using a gun, 20 years for firing a gun, and 25 to life for seriously injuring or killing another person with a gun. And it runs consecutive to the sentence that you are given for the crime of which this use a gun and you're done enhancement is applicable too. So that adds up to 50 years. Then on count two, discharging a firearm into an occupied vehicle, Chad received a consecutive determinant term of seven years plus a consecutive term of 10 years for the personal use of an assault weapon enhancement pursuant to that same use a gun and you're done law. Then he got consecutive determinant terms of one year on each of the five assault counts plus consecutive terms of two years on the five enhancements for personal use of an assault weapon corresponding to those five counts with the same statute 
and consecutive terms of one year on the two enhancements for personal use of a firearm causing great bodily injury and a concurrent term for possession of an assault weapon. So yeah, if you decide to fire into a car full of six people, you're going to get all kinds of statutes, enhancements, and books thrown at you, especially if you kill one of them. Today, Chad Wallen-Reed is 48 years old. He's been locked up now for, it'll be a dozen years come this July 4th. He didn't get to see his kids hit all those milestones as they made their ways into adulthood. But that's the price that he was made to pay for costing Rory McGuire his life and his family the ability to ever be with him again in this life. I just hope that those solar lights were worth it, Mr. Republic of Chad. And that brings this episode to a close. Don't forget to follow me on all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Throw a couple dollars into Patreon if you should be so inclined. I appreciate all of your help. Some of you are already receiving the pride stickers for the month of June. I saw that some of them have been arriving torn up and tattered. I will try to take care of that with the next few that I'm sending out. I've got your emails. If for some crazy reason you sent me an email and you don't get a sticker in the next couple of weeks, then hit me up again because I definitely have plenty left over. If you hadn't heard, I'm giving away stickers in the month of June. Just send over your mailing information to the email listed in the show notes. And that's all I got for today. Until next time, sweet dreams.